scripture reading today, we will be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. I'll give you just a moment to get there in your Bible, uh, in person and and in online. All right, the word of God reads, they went on from there and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Good morning. It's good to worship with you, whether you are with us in person or joining us virtually. If you're new to us, let me extend to you my welcome. And if we've not met personally, there's several new visitors that we've had. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of Mark, and we're in a section where Jesus is very intentional. He's telling his disciples what it means for him to be the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God who's come to destroy sin and evil. They understand that part, but they're having trouble with the other things that he's saying to them. Verse 31, that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men that those people will kill him, that he'll rise again three days later. The first time that he's taught that, Peter took him aside and rebuked him directly. Second time that he made a couple of references to this on his way down a mountain, the disciples suggested indirectly, maybe this wasn't really necessary. This time, verse 32, they don't even talk with him about it. But they do talk with each other. And what they're talking about seems to have absolutely nothing to do with what he just said. Verse 34, while they were walking, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, about who was most important among them. And that's odd. You think these two conversations just don't go together. The rabbi just said he had to die, and they're busy sorting out the pecking order among them. And you think, what's going on here? How does that make any sense? In order to make sense of this, you have to remember what Jesus has taught us in another gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 34, that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That what comes out of your mouth is controlled by something that Scripture calls your heart. And we've talked about this before at Renewal, but it's really important to get this. In a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of human beings, there are two aspects of a person. There's an inner person, and an outer person. Both of those aspects are really you, but they have different functions in expressing you. The outer person, 
the physical you, is everything that's associated with your body, with your senses. This is the person that moves through time and space that affects time and space. It's the part of you that all the rest of us experience. There's a physical part of you, and then there's the spiritual part of you, an inner you that we can't see. And throughout the Old Testament, Scripture will often refer to this inner person by using the word heart. This heart, this is the essential you. It's the part of you that wants certain things and doesn't want certain other things. It's the part of you that values, that says these things over here are worthwhile. These are what are necessary to have a good life, and so I have to have them, while these other things over here, they're not as necessary. I don't need them in the same way as I need these others. In that sense, this is the part of you that worships, that worships some things of, as being of ultimate value while deciding that other things are of less value. And so this is the part that we talk about as either being oriented toward the Lord or oriented toward something else that either wants him like it wants nothing else and wants what he wants above everything else or that wants something else instead of him, that looks for a substitute for him, something that it values more highly than it values him. This is the part of you that values certain things over other things, and it's the part that then moves that outer you to try and get the things that it wants. And so when Jesus says that out of the heart the mouth speaks, he's simply following the rest of Scripture, and he says that your mouth speaks what your heart wants, that your heart is the source of what you say, that spilling out of your mouth is what? It is your heart. Your words are taking your invisible heart and they're making it visible, making visible everything that it longs for. So when you hear the disciples discussing who is the greatest, they're expressing their hearts. They're saying that what captures them, that what they value most highly is being great, important, influential, noticed, honored, all things that their society was obsessed with. The New Testament scholar James Edwards describes what that first century Israelite obsession was like. He says, quote, Rabbinic writings frequently comment on the seating order in paradise and argue that the just would sit nearer to the throne of God than even the angels. Earthly orders of seating at worship and meals or authority within the community, dealings with inferiors and superiors, were seen as preparation for the eternal order to come. So where you sat now was determinative of where you would sit later. There's even an ultra-religious sect that left some writings, and he quotes from that, uh, one of their writings. This is uh, detailing how they were to process into their meeting space. First priests, then Levites, and in the third place, all the people— Here's the reason, so that all the children of Israel may know their standing in God's community in conformity with the eternal plan. And no one shall move down from his rank, nor move up from the place of his lot. Israelite society was consumed with knowing where your place was, knowing how important you were, knowing how great you were. It was the air that the disciples breathed, and given their words, it was the value that their hearts latched onto, 
that they brought that inside and agreed with it. Their hearts valued having a sense of your own greatness so highly that it controlled what went through their minds and what came out of their mouths. So Jesus has just offered them a different way of thinking. One where he says, I, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, will not be counted as greatest among humanity. I'm going to be counted as least. I'm going to be delivered over to other people. But the disciples hearing that did not embrace that. Why is that? Because they had embraced something else instead. That's how the heart works. When you and I don't believe what God has said is true, is good, is best, it's because we believe something else. We believe that something else is better, more, truer, more good. And it's shocking how easy it is to do that. You have to remember, Jesus handpicked these guys to be with him. They have lived with him and worked with him months, maybe years at this point. They know him. And their hearts just run so quickly away from him. Which means that you and I can do that too. So if we're going to stay close to Jesus, we need to see three important truths about our hearts that come from today's passage. We need to see first that your heart will get in the way between you and Jesus. Second, that your heart will create an alternative, ungodly way of life that Jesus then has to address. And third, we have to see that there's hope for your heart. We have to see that your heart will get in the way of following Jesus, that it will lead you away from a godly way of life, and thankfully, that there's hope for you and me. First, how on earth did these guys go from what Jesus just said about dying to talking about their own greatness? Let's see if we can trace some of that out. Look again at what Jesus said to them. Verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. There are two biblical themes in that sentence. There's the Son of Man theme, and then there's the into the hands of men theme. Isaiah 53 talks about into the hands of men. It talks about how God's servant will suffer at the hands of humanity. He'll, he will, verse 3, be despised and rejected by mankind. He'll be pierced, crushed, wounded. This one, this servant that God gives to humanity is then rejected by humanity, and he suffers at the hands of humanity. That's one theme in what Jesus just said. Here's the second theme. Daniel chapter 7 describes a vision that Daniel had where he sees someone who looks like a son of man. And this being, this son of man, came on the clouds of heaven. He's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, into God's presence himself. And verse 14, he's given authority, glory, sovereign power. All the nations and people of every language worship him. And his kingdom never passes away. Nothing can destroy it. Jesus takes those two themes and he puts them in the same sentence. The son of man, this glorious being, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. The disciples hear these two things, and they walk away arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They are literally speaking their hearts. But do you see the impact that their hearts had on what Jesus said? Jesus brought together two things, things that are equally biblically true, and they latched onto one of them, and ignored the other. They heard, Son of Man, power, honor, glory, 
and they stopped there. Started wondering what kind of cut they were going to get. Jesus is counting the cost of his mission. He's implicitly calling the disciples to the same cost because they're following him. He's counting the cost, and they're counting the gain. Counting what they gain by being with him. Here's the first problem of the heart. It will latch on to certain things that God says, and it will ignore others. And when it does that, it twists that thing that it takes, because it takes that one thing and abstracts it out of the larger context that Jesus was talking in. It takes that one part and makes it the whole. So Jesus can say that the Son of Man will be destroyed by human hands, and they hear glory is coming, Better get in line. Make sure you have your spot picked out. This is what the heart does. It twists what God says. That's the first thing that your heart does. It hears some of what God has to say, but not the rest. Here's the second thing it does. It keeps you from pressing into Jesus. Verse 32, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now think about this. Jesus is bringing the conversation up. He's willing to talk about it, but they're not. They're confused. When you fixate on glory and honor, it doesn't make sense that God would throw glory and honor away. Doesn't make sense that he thinks there is something better to have than glory and honor. Something better that he can have by dying. They're confused. How can this possibly be? They're confused, but worse, they're afraid to ask him. Which tells you what, there's a gulf starting to open up between them and Jesus. They can't figure out how to put things together, but they're not going to him for help. They've done that before. They've asked him at other times, but now that, that doesn't seem like such a good idea. And so left to themselves, not pressing into Jesus for his help, they have reverted back to a conversation of what they most value, who's the greatest among us? Now, if you've been tracking with us over the last three weeks or so, you've realized this is starting to get serious. Because every time Jesus talks to them, every time he tries to teach them about himself and his mission, which in turn would inform them about themselves and their mission, every time he tries to do that, it doesn't help. They don't get it. Every time they miss the point. Their hearts are getting in the way. What they have set their hearts on is corrupting, twisting, distorting what Jesus says to them. And he can't talk them out of what they've set their hearts on. And that has to sober you and me this morning. Because it shows you what words alone cannot do. It shows you that mere education will not affect the human heart. That you can't talk someone out of what they worship. You can show them, you can teach them, you can instruct them, you can bring words to them, you can point them to what they need to embrace, you can show them why it would be good for them to worship that, to value that. You have to do all that. But your words do not have the power to make someone else embrace what they should embrace. This is a challenging passage. Let this sink in. Jesus' words are not changing his disciples. He's the teacher beyond compare. He's teaching them plainly. They obviously remembered what he said from that day, wrote it down. 
And it was not enough to affect what they talked about as they followed along behind him. His words did not change what came out of their mouths. Their hearts are still locked onto their own agenda, still dictating what they thought about and what they said. Which means it is very possible for you and me to hear Jesus' words this morning and walk away with unchanged hearts. Very possible to hear Jesus' words and walk away confused, unchanged. If you will not deal with your heart, you cannot hear what Jesus actually says. If you will not deal with your personal idols or the cultural idols that your heart latches onto, the things that you think will make life worth living, money, sex, relationships, power, respect, the things that you hold up as of ultimate value, if you will not deal with those things, if you will not repent of them, renounce them, walk away from relying on them, they will get in the way between you and Jesus. And you'll end up doing exactly what the disciples did. You'll only hear part of what God has to say to you. And it will be the part that you expect to hear. The part that you want to hear. Let me give you a litmus test, a warning signal, so that you can know if that's happened to you. You know that this has happened to you when you read Scripture and you no longer feel convicted by it. When you read Scripture and you find that you and God are perfectly in sync with each other, that you're never surprised by what He says, that you're never offended by what He says. When you and the holy, eternal, all-wise God completely agree on everything that He has to say, Agree so that you never feel challenged by anything. When that happens, pay attention. Because something in your heart's gotten in the way. Something is now in the way of you hearing from God. And when that happens, you won't feel convicted by what you read. You won't find yourself growing in your faith. You won't find yourself understanding how to live out your faith. You will find yourself relying less on Christ and more on those things that you value. You'll talk about those things that you value far more than you will talk about what Jesus just said. And you'll find yourself not really interested in moving toward him. What you're seeing in this passage is really serious. Avoid dealing with your heart, and you will lose the ability to hear Christ when he speaks, and you'll lose the desire to lean into him, to press into him when you have to. That's point one. If you don't wrestle with your heart, it will get in the way of following Jesus. Point two, your heart will create an ungodly way of life that Jesus then has to address. It makes sense that if you pull one thing out of what Jesus says and if you treat it as if it were the whole, it makes sense that you're going to live, end up with a very different kind of life than what Jesus would invite you to. So what is life like when you idolize greatness? Well, it means that you start to evaluate yourself now on a scale of how important you are in other people's eyes, of whether they think you should have a more valued place than they do, a more honored place, based on what you've done and the kind of influence that you have. So in that kind of life, what are you doing? You're, you're looking to get value from others. 
You're looking to be honored, deferred to. The direction of your life then is what? It's, it's inward. You're looking to get from other people so that the way that they treat you then adds value to you. Which, if you go down that road, puts you in a very insecure position. <laughs> Let yourself slip up once. Do something a little squirrely or a little less praiseworthy and your place will slip. Your value will go down based on your performance. You'll drop a couple notches. Someone else will scoot in above you, take that position from you. It's an insecure system because it depends on you and it depends on your performance. It's a works-oriented system, but it's built on fallible people, people who make mistakes, people who sin, which means that the whole system is inherently unstable. Or just consider what happens when someone else does something really, really well. Or when they're just super gifted and they do everything really, really well. What happens when they now enter your world? Your place in the pecking order drops because they take the place above you. And so in that kind of system, you have to work incredibly hard just to stay in place. You have to make no mistakes ever just to stay where you are. And there has to be no one coming up from behind who's sharper, quicker, smarter, a little more gifted. Or your value drops. Your greatness is less. It's the inherent danger of measuring yourself by what you do or by comparison with others, how others do. It's an ugly world. has nothing to do with Jesus. It devalues everybody involved, regardless of where you are on the honor scale. And so Jesus has no interest in propping that up. He decides to go after it. He sits down, verse 35, which in that culture was to take a position of authority. And he tells them authoritatively about the world that he's going to create, the world that his mission is going to bring about. And he says that there is greatness in his world, but that it has a different character than what you find in this other one. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you would be great in the kingdom of God, you have to serve. The direction of your life has to go outward, not inward. Your goal is to see, how much life can I breathe into someone else, instead of wondering how much others can breathe into you? And to illustrate just how radically different his kingdom is, Jesus, verse 36, took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now think about his illustration here. Think about what children are like. Think back to your own childhood. Children have what? They, they have very little to offer back. They have no idea how much you pour into their lives just so that they can survive. And so even if you did not have great parents, they poured more into you than you can ever know. Children don't know what they're given. They can barely thank you, and they can never pay back anything close to what you've given them. Jesus puts a little child in front of them, and he says, when you serve someone like this, someone who adds nothing to your status or importance, someone who does not even recognize what you've done for them, 
When you do that in my name, for my sake, when you do that because you're concerned with what I think of you, not what anyone else thinks of you, when you do that, then you are receiving me. You are welcoming me. And when you welcome me, you welcome my Father. When that happens, when you're serving this one who can give you nothing back, then you have finally embraced me, and you've embraced what I've come to do. So if you want to be great in Jesus' eyes, you have to look around for those who are in need, for those who cannot provide something for themselves that they need, for those who have no standing in anyone else's eyes. You're to look around for those people, and you're to step in and do what Jesus does. You are to embrace them in their need, and you are to pour into them, honoring them in the sight of everyone else without looking to get something back for yourself. So think for a few moments. Who do I know like this? And remember what we said last week. Don't let your mind wander to some class of people, to the poor, the needy, the homeless. But think, who has God put into my world like this child was there in Jesus' world? Who's God put into my world who needs me to serve them? Who does everyone around you overlook? Make yourself think. Get a name. Get a face there. And then take the next step and ask the question, how can I embrace them in Jesus' name for their sake? Who does everybody else around me overlook? Or think about who does everyone avoid at work? Who do they avoid at school? What would it mean for you to embrace them? to care for them, even though they'll add nothing to your status. They might even lower it. Who struggles with their projects? Who has too much on their plate? Who always says the wrong thing at the wrong time? Who needs you to embrace them? Or look around again and ask yourself, who's awkward in conversations? Just hard to talk with. Who struggles to make friends? Who feels lonely? never gets invited to coffee, never gets invited to dinner. What would it look like to serve them? Who's stressed out in your home? What do they need help with? Even if they always seem to need help with the same thing. Who needs you to pick up after them one more time? To initiate with them and ask them about their day one more time. To invite them out of their shell one more time. Who needs you to notice them and embrace them? Who's stressed out, not in your home, in someone else's home? Stressed out, maybe too proud to ask for help. What would it look like for you to offer to help anyway? Who in your world needs someone to take an interest in them, to make time for them, to listen to them, to let them know that as an image of God they matter, to another image of God. What's Jesus talking about here? He's saying he's building a community where every single person is valued. That's our calling here at Renewal Main Line, to make sure that everyone is honored, that everyone is helped, that everyone is needed. And he calls you then to take the gifts and the strengths that he has given you. He calls you to use your greatness, not to call attention to yourself, but to give what you can to someone else. 
And that is so hard to do. It runs against our nature. And if your heart wants to be important, if it craves status, greatness, your mind just recoils at all of this. Your mind starts objecting. So I'm just supposed to be the giver in every relationship? I'm supposed to always give out? Never get anything back? Just let people take advantage of me? It's not what Jesus is saying here. He didn't say let someone abuse you for what they can get out of you. He didn't say let someone drain the life out of you. He said look around for those who cannot do for themselves. Not the ones who are lording it over others, demanding to be served, but look for the ones who are at the mercy of the demanders, who are at the mercy of the great and powerful. Look for those with no standing and yet who have great needs. Or maybe your objection's a little softer. You think, oh man, <laughs> that sounds exhausting. Honestly, that, that, that sounds completely unattractive. I'm supposed to never have any time for myself, not get any personal attention for myself. What if my relationships don't fill me up? Here's where it's really helpful to look at Jesus. Because when you do, you realize that his relationships never filled him up either. And yet he kept on serving, on and on. You never get a hint that he didn't love it. And so he grew up with brothers who did not believe in him, and yet you never get a sense that he lived a life of hurt from their rejection. He had to deal constantly with criticism from the leaders of his day, from the great and powerful. But he doesn't come across as bitter, not beaten down. Instead, every time they initiate with him, he talks with them again. Why? They needed him to. It's for their good. His own disciples are not even close to being on board with him, and he's not apathetic with them. He hasn't given up on them. He's still trying to reach them, trying to reach their hearts. He's still talking to them. He is the most powerful, most hopeful, let me say it this way, most stubbornly optimistic person that you ever meet in Scripture. And he fully expects that the disciples, by extension you and me, as we follow him, he fully expects that the disciples really will get his way of life. And he really expects that when they do, they're going to love it. He knows that one day his words will have the effect on them that he intends, and so he keeps talking, even when it seems like no one's listening. You think, how? <laughs> how do you live this way? What was he relying on? Bring it in closer to home. How do we now hear Jesus' call to sacrificially serve and have any hope that we would love doing that? How do we have any hope of living like Jesus did? This is point three. What hope is there for your heart, for my heart? We find hope in two things here. First, verse 31, Jesus is delivered into the hands of men. This is a new part of his teaching about his death that he hasn't said before. That he is delivered into the hands of men. Now, why is that hopeful? Because being delivered comes with the implication that someone had the authority to do the delivering, the handing over. Someone has authority to hand the anointed one of God over to human hands. 
Only one, kind, one person has that kind of authority, and that's God himself. Human beings will bear the responsibility for putting Jesus to death. We bear the responsibility for rejecting the one that God sent to us, but there's something else in play here as well. There's a higher purpose. There's something bigger. Again, go back to Isaiah 53. We learn there that not only does humanity despise and reject this one that God sends to them, but we also learn that God himself is involved, that he's involved, verse 4, in punishing this one, that God's own servant was stricken by God and afflicted, that, verse 5, God connects the piercing and the crushing that his servant endured with our transgressions and our iniquities so that by his wounds we are healed. In delivering Jesus over, we learn that God has a purpose, and that purpose is for our atonement, that God did this to take away the guilt of our hearts that long for greatness, that he did this to take away the ugliness inside of us that thinks serving is unattractive, that thinks everybody else should serve us instead. Jesus cannot simply talk his guys out of their longing for greatness. And so he goes to the cross to atone for their guilt by taking it on himself and paying for it. And he does that so that they can now stand guiltless before God, forgiven, so that God himself can embrace them. And that's the second thing that gives us hope. Because not only is our sin forgiven, but our God pulls us to himself. Did you catch that detail with the child? Verse 36. Jesus took him in his arms. He wrapped his arms around the child. He embraced him. He loved this one who was overlooked, who needed to be loved. And in that moment, with all those big important disciples, there's no one in the room who's closer to Jesus than that child. No one who's more intimate with him. And Jesus says to the guys, I'm your example right now. I want you to do what I'm doing. I want you to love those who need to be loved because if you think about it, it's really you also. There's no real difference between you disciples and this child. You can't provide for yourself the most basic necessity that you have. You can't change your own heart which means you can't be embraced by God because your longing for greatness, your sin, keeps you from him. You are as helpless as this child. But since the Father cannot embrace you now as you are, I will trade places with you. I've been loved, embraced by the Father from all eternity. That's my source of life. It's my source of joy. It's my source of power. It's what keeps me energized when I get nothing back from the people that I love. I am loved. I know what love is. But I will take your place and experience not being loved by the Father. I will be rejected by men and I'll be rejected by God, forsaken on the cross so that you never will be, so that you can feel what it's like to be loved by him, so that you can feel his embrace, so that you can be secure in it and absolutely certain of it. I want you now to take my place in loving this child because I will take your place in not being loved. 
And I will do that so that you are loved with an everlasting love. It's not based on how good you are, but on how great God is. And it's his love for you that will then be the source of life in you. It will fuel you. It will empower you, just like it fuels me. Now, what I want to say is really important. And it's something that I feel the need of, something I need to experience just as much as anyone else in this room. It's something that I have some experience with, but I have to confess to you, I don't have nearly enough of this. So I'm speaking to me right now as much as I'm speaking to anyone else. If you want to live the way Jesus lived, if I want to live the way Jesus lived, sacrificially, joyfully, hopefully, pouring himself out constantly, if you want to live the way Jesus lived, you have to experience what he experienced. You have to have God embrace you. You have to experience the strong arms of Jesus pulling you into a deep, intimate closeness with him. A closeness with God that is not just satisfying, but empowering, that fills you beyond full so that it's not a burden to give yourself away because there's plenty more flowing into you, reshaping you, so that you no longer care about greatness. What you care about is that someone else does not feel the same thing that you are feeling from God himself and you want them to. What's this look like? Does it mean that you finally get what you wanted out of life? That others now treat you well at least some of the time or maybe you get some nice things? That might happen. That's not what we're talking about. This means so much more. This kind of love does not depend on anything else going well in your world. But this kind of love changes how you approach life. It changes how you think about life. It changes how you talk about life. It changes your sentence structure. You go from saying things like, I know God loves me, but what good is that if my husband doesn't like me? You go from that kind of sentence to a different one. One that says, my husband doesn't seem to really care about me, but my God does. You hear the change? Your emphasis changes. What you're looking to to give you life changes. What you're trusting to really fill you up changes. You're still hurt when other people, especially close people, spouses, children, friends, you're still hurt when they don't treat you like they should. You're hurt but not destroyed because you have a present tense source of love. You know what it is to be loved. And no one can take that away from you. And so the downbeat of your life changes. The center of gravity that you keep moving toward changes. The emotional center of your life changes. It's not a consolation prize kind of change. You know, we talk like that sometimes. Well, you know, I really wanted a Lexus, but they were all out. But I still have Jesus. It's not like that. What is that? 
That's just you talking yourself out of being disappointed, trying to talk yourself into something that you really don't like. That's just using God talk to get through life, but there's no real life there. This intimacy with God is different. You can hear it in your voice, your tone, your words, all signal, here's where life really is. It's in God's embrace. And so everything about you then orients in that direction because your heart finds life now. It finds ultimate satisfaction with God and in his love. And so you can say to someone you really love who's not treating you well, I'd really like to be embraced by you. That really matters to me. You really matter to me. But if I'm not embraced by you, I'll still be okay because the embrace that I have from God is real. And it is more than enough to make up for whatever I don't have anywhere else. Live with this present embrace of God, this awareness of his love. Seek him for it. Ask him for it until you know it. And you will then have everything that you need to embrace others. You still might not have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You still might not have a spouse who thinks you walk on water. You still might not have a car that doesn't test your prayer life every time you start it up. You might not have an amazing job, promotion, kids who respect you, parents who understand you, friends who like you. But if you experience the love of Christ, you will have plenty left over to give to others. And these are your only two options. You can try to get life horizontally from other people and from other things, and you will be insecure, forever caught up in trying to decide just how great you are, how much you should be given. Or get life vertically, and you will find yourself running to the people around you, joyfully meeting their needs because Christ's love is just spilling out of you. Lord, I can say these things, and I've tasted them, but man, I need so much more. My brothers and sisters need so much more, too. Lord, we have no other recourse except to come to you and ask you to love us. To love us in such a way that we don't have to work it out in a syllogistic principle walking our minds back and forth through things that we know, but we feel it and we experience it. And we have a deep-rooted confidence in what you've given to us, what you continue to give us, not 2,000 years ago, but right now. Lord, will you fill us up so that we are glad to love you back and to love our neighbor as ourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all rise and respond with